recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. This is The Poetry Project. Rena Gossett performs the poetics of activism every day. She asks us, how can we do the same? How complex, yet how simple this is. I watched her lead a human microphone teach-in at Occupy Wall Street in 2011. The sign held next to her read, When you are speaking, who is not? And actions performed by the street transvestite action revolutionaries star illustrated in blow-up pictures by the protesters surrounding her as she described the radical events that have been twisted into what we now call versions of corporate gay pride. Reina shows how collectivity works, how to hold histories, and how to imagine both trans liberation and prison abolition. Here is just a glimpse into some of the events that Reina's spoken at over the last few months, and this is a long list, I'll warn you. <laughs> Futures of abolition, trans and queer resistance against the prison industrial complex, queer studies in class roundtable, We Cannot Live Without Our Lives, a conversation on anti-blackness, trans resistance, and prison abolition with Cece McDonald, Janetta Johnson, and Eric Stanley. Sex in Public, Queer History, Inside and Outside of the University. Are the Gods Afraid of Black Sexuality? Redefining Realness, a salon in honor of Janet Mock. Who are the Violent Ones? Queer, Critical Queer Perspectives on the Carceral State, And then also the web series, No One is Disposable, Everyday Practices of Prison Abolition, part of Reina's activist-in-residence at Barnard College Center for Research on Women. These conversations that Reina is participating in encompass the work of challenging and restructuring violent systems of oppression. She is doing this tireless incremental work, and I am so grateful to have Reina chiming in, even over Skype, on Huffington Post TV when they cover stories such as changing gender designation on identification papers or freeing Jane Doe. While critiquing the criminalization of survival of trans and low-income people of color, Reina brings up real questions of how love and creativity can enter the traditional austerity of revolutionary thought. In the anthology Trans Embodiment in the Prison Industrial Complex, Captive Genders, Raina writes, rather than reclaiming our lineage, let's start to challenge the context. I can't wait for Raina and Sasha Worsell's film Happy Birthday, Marsha, a documentary that will combine archival footage and many years of research with contemporary actors playing Marsha P. Johnson's fateful birthday and exploring her and Sylvia Rivera's friendship. The documentary will help expand the work of Star and document the intimacies of these two heroes' daily lives. This is only more and more relevant today as, and Rena says in the film, will challenge the hierarchy of intelligible history in the archives that keep our stories as trans and gender nonconforming people from ever surfacing in the first place. Please help me in welcoming Raina Gossett. Uh, thank you so much for having me here during that introduction. I was really hoping whoever that brilliant person was was like also sitting here and could come up and talk because hearing that reflected back on me, it's, um, it's like really beautiful um, and also like daunting to 
do anything in 20 minutes that encompasses um, what Ariel just said. But I'm going to try. I usually don't read. I'm going to do that uh, as well. And I'm just, again, really happy to be here. I'm going to preface, uh, preface what I say just a little bit um, right now. And then I was at this talk at the American Studies Association where this person was like one, you know, the kind of the poetic forms, like one, and then read a little bit, and then like two, and then read a little bit. And so I, I'm going to do that, but it's going to be more like, like, just so you know that it's like all part of the same conversation, but I'm like, is my number two. Okay, so preface. Tonight, I'm going to be reading about death, which is to say I'm going to be talking about magic. I was hesitant to talk about such a, heavy, such a heavy subject, not least of which because, as my friend, the witch Dory Midnight says, we don't talk about death in the same way that we, don't, we avoid the dark. We live in an electrically saturated bright world where we rarely have to be in the dark and where, when we die, we are still supposed to look alive. I'm speaking about death specifically in response to the recent rise in visibility of trans people, happening on the cover of Time magazine, through Netflix or Amazon, and in popular culture in general, that is coinciding and deeply tied to the rapid rise of trans women of color being murdered in the U.S., this year being the highest documented homicide rate of trans women of color ever. And given how underreported or misreported and misreported um, these statistics are. I'm thinking about, you know, often like the man in strange clothing found murdered on the highway. It would be misguiding at best to suggest that this figure, highest ever, can really tell us anything about the levels of anti-trans or anti-queer violence happening, especially because not contained in these statistics are how the police and the prison are two of the largest perpetrators of anti-trans violence. For me, this is an urgent and complex matter and is further complicated by how so often the only times trans lives were portrayed in Time magazine, Netflix, or Amazon prior to this current moment was as lifeless murder victims. And so much of the more recent visibility projects have been about telling a story outside of that narrative, the narrative of death or being the object. These visibility projects have, and when I say being the object, I mean like something is happening to us. And so more recently I've been like, we are verbing, right? We are the subjects in these sentences. We are doing these things. We are surviving violences. We are fighting back. We are surviving, you know, building strong communities. So we are subjects, and that's been part of my, like, visibility project. These visibility projects have moved through me, moved around me, and also hurt me because so often they work to actively conceal the very conditions that necessitated the now co-opted call for visibility or living unapologetically in the first place. The overkilling of trans and gender nonconforming people by, through, and within the carceral state. So, that was the preface. (laughs) Last week... I participated in a talk at the One Archives in Los Angeles, organized by Erica Stanley, that brought together a legendary group of black trans women whose trans liberation and prison abolition work spans generations. I'm talking about Miss Major, Janetta Johnson, and Cecil McDonald. The talk was titled Futures of Abolition, Abolition just being another way of saying that the police and prisons and carceral logics are designed solely to control us and kill us and both perpetuate and are also the biggest obstacle to solving the very harms it purports to fix. It felt so fitting to be at the One Archives, which is a space that has put me in touch with so much of the abolitionist past with, uh, that 
queer and trans communities today inherit, including the work of the Gay Liberation Front in LA and their incredible engagement with magic. As I've come to understand it, the separation of magic from queer and trans communities is similar to the separation of abolition from queer and trans communities, and it's a pretty recent occurrence, having much to do with the rise of the assimilation of gay and lesbians in the age of neoliberalism. As Ariel said, we talked about it at the Occupy Wall Street teach-in, where we talked about how after Stonewall, Sylvia Rivera helped to organize the first annual Christopher Street Liberation March, which ended on purpose at the Women's House of Detention in order to connect mass incarceration of queer people, trans people, and people of color with organizing done by other revolutionary social movements like the Black Panther Party. It was no coincidence that Joan Byrd and the Fini Shakur, members of the Panther 21, were currently held in the Women's House of Detention when the Christopher Street Liberation March arrived there chanting, free our sisters, free ourselves. Anyway, a few days after the Future of Abolition talk um, last week, some of us were having dinner in the dark. It was like 90 degrees in California, and it was a Taurus full moon. Uh, and so we're outside under the full moon, but more specifically, we were under a carceral California sky, a carceral sky that helps explain why so many of us have turned our backs on the project of this nation state so permanently. Beneath the sky in the dark, we looked up. At first, we saw a steady streak of matte gray that scared the shit out of us. It appeared to be an airplane, but it wasn't lit up. All I could think about was the UFO convention my friend had gone to a few weeks before, her fears of being abducted and the knowledge that she shared with us that we have all been abducted our whole lives. The steady and slowly moving streak was soon followed by an LAPD helicopter, all lit up, which preceded a fleet of LAPD cars, which preceded a volley of LAPD bullets, followed by the death of a person who was shot down just a few blocks away from us. But at that moment, I didn't know half of it. But I was suddenly reminded of Ursula Gwynn describing the sky full of orbiting eyes and weaponry during a speech where she urged failure as a political project, saying, and when you fail and are defeated and in pain and in the dark, I hope you will remember that darkness is your country, where you live, where no wars are fought and no wars are won, but where the future is. So the question my reading asks tonight is where my future is, a future not separate from the future of abolition, or another way of putting that, as Alexis Pauline Gums puts it, what legacies haunt the places that you live and pass through? What are the voices of of forgotten, erased, and violated ancestors teaching you today? Here are some of my answers. As a queer and trans person of color and a person working within gender liberation and self-determination movements, I so often hear about death, especially in November and the days leading up to Trans Day of Remembrance, which is often like one of the only times like trans people get invited to a university to do a talk, and like it's really framed um, in a way that these current visibility projects often push back against. Right, like you're only the object of death. Speak on that. But more specifically, I mean, I so often interact with the overkilling of queer and trans people, often low-income, living with HIV and AIDS, undocumented, disabled, and people of color. And by interact, I mean I have a lot of friends who have died. So much death, so much killing has made me wonder how to be accountable to the dead as well as the living. I remember reading the essay Dark Resurrections, Origin and Possibility last year by Alexis Pauline Gums 
where she writes about our lives as continuous, from the bones covering the Atlantic Ocean and necropolitical trail from the slave trade, to the Kambahi River Collective, a group of black women organizing around the murder of black women in Boston in the 70s, to today. She says, quote, the living and the dead and the yet unborn are fully involved in our struggle, all present, all demanding our accountability. So often in our movement, we rush to urgently respond, and rightfully so, to the huge violences affecting our lives. But we do so at the loss of creating spaces that support us to feel the moment as continuous, to honor and recognize the power of grief. In his essay, Mourning and Militancy, the AIDS activist Douglas Crimp, having worked to center mourning as a powerfully psychic and necessary force for queer people to experience, reflected on grief as misunderstood by many activist communities. He said, public mourning rituals may of course have their own political force, but they nevertheless often seem from an activist perspective, indulgent, sentimental, defeatist, end quote. So for me, it's within this context that I'm really inspired by historical moments where people came to hold ancestral and personal grief as a powerfully political act make plain the connections between grief and state violence, diminishing circles of care, resource and isolation, resist silence and shame by honoring people who have passed all the while deepening our own relationships in our living. An example. To commemorate the 40th anniversary of Stonewall, the New York Public Library put up a series of amazing photographs of street transvestite action revolutionaries, star, um, and also, you know, uh, the takeover of Weinstein Hall, the protests outside Bellevue, um, like things that are really part of our city that aren't necessarily held in queer history. And a friend of mine went to check them out, who was doing archival research, and found a fire from the Gay Liberation Front in the 70s in LA, um, which I thought was incredibly powerful, and I got to see a copy of when I was at the One Archives last week. The flyer read, Sunday, March 7th, for three police murders. Larry Turner, black street transvestite, killed by Los Angeles police, March 8, 1970. Howard Efland, gay brother, killed by Los Angeles police, March 7, 1970. Ginny Gallegos, gay sister, killed by Los Angeles police, spring 1970. Tin can demonstration. Bring, bring a small, empty tin can and a pencil to beat it with. It will make an ominous and interesting sound. During, that demonstra during the demonstration, we will attempt to raise by magic the Rampart police station several feet above the ground. This was at the bottom of the flyer. And hopefully cause it to disappear for two hours. <laughs> if the GLF is successful in this effort, we will alleviate a major source of homosexual oppression for at least those two hours. A large turnout might do the same for a longer period of time. Support this action with your presence. It's a peaceful, nonviolent demonstration. Howard Eflin died in 1970. Uh, this is not the flyer. This is like research I've been doing. Howard Eflin died in 1970 due to massive internal injuries, which the coroner ruled as an excusable LAPD homicide because Howard Eflin supposedly resisted arrest to vice officers. But according to witnesses, <clears throat> excuse me, Howard, who possibly preferred uh, the name Jay McCann, it's not clear, was held to the ground and beaten. According to an article by the trans activist Angela Douglas in Come Out magazine shortly after their deaths, 
Laverne, who was named as Larry in the flyer, and Ginny were also both killed for resisting arrest and, in Laverne's case, for dressing in feminine attire. But what I found, find so moving about this flyer and about this action is how Laverne, Howard, or Jay McCann, and Ginny are honored as ancestors and are present in the action through a levitated and disappeared police station. They're honored by ominous and interesting sounds and a large turnout of mourners. I love the levity, not like just the levitation, but the levity, the humor, um, that accompanied the action because like humoring, uh, mourning doesn't have to be separate from like being funny. According to witnesses, the station rose six feet um, after demonstrators you know, chanted raise, raise. I love how haunting this demonstration is, responding to the killing and ongoing threats of homophobic, racist, and transphobic violence from the state by organizing an action filled with accountability for the living, dead, and unknown forces that are all fully involved in our struggle for liberation. So outside the normalized organizing tactics preferred by the nonprofit industrial complex, where like that's where I work, uh, 40 years later, this action feels incredibly accountable to the yet to arrive, like me, the dead and the living, all present at the Rampart Police Station in 1970. This moment also leaves me in awe, accounted for, and curious. I wonder what a resurgence of actions connected and accountable to grief, the dead, the yet arrived, and the unknown, and alive would do for our collective resilience. I imagine a shift in connection, accountability, and more space in our movements to hold more people, more levity, both levitation and just funniness, and more magic, less isolation, and less shame. My friend Rebecca helped me figure it out by putting it another way. Here's what I mean, she wrote. We live in a present which is cross-sectioned of the future and the past. Imagined, remembered, misremembered, forgotten, unknown, known, magic, mundane, and dreamed. We try to make a narrative. We make many. That helps, and it is also violent, and sometimes it is impossible to tell which. Yes, most of the time is it, impossible to, it is impossible to tell which. Um, so I'm going to end with a poem. I'm going to end with a poem by Lucille Clifton, uh, which comes by way of Alexis Pauline Gums, and um, it really speaks to me. And it also reminds me that the transatlantic slave trade, just like the carceral system, just like the prison, just like the backseat of the cop car, are also gendering apparatuses. Where so often, um, like in men's prisons, we don't actually know if everyone identifies as a man. Uh, there are actually a lot of women in men's prisons. Um, and one of the violences of those systems is erasing people's self-determination. So I was thinking about that as I was reading this poem that still really, I think, is amazing. And the poem is, Atlantic is a sea of bones. And it starts with a black spiritual. Them bones, them bones will rise again. Them bones, them bones will walk again. Them bones, them bones will talk again. Now hear the word of the Lord. Atlantic is a sea of bones, my bones, my elegant African bones, connecting Wida and New York, a bridge of ivory. Seabed, they call it, and in its arms, my early mother's sleep. Some women leapt with babies in their arms. Some women wept and threw the babies in. Maternal armies paced the Atlantic floor. 
I call my name into the roar of surf and something awful answers. Thank you. Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.